Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that the tomb was empty 2,000 years ago, and it still is. Father, we're grateful that an empty grave changed everything for us, and even though graves for us now get filled up, we know that there's a day coming when the trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will rise, and we will see our risen Savior face to face. And until that day, we pray that we would walk faithfully and victoriously in his footsteps because he is risen and we have risen with him and are seated with him in heavenly places. And we are grateful for the faith that the apostles died for because they knew the grave was empty. And so, Lord, we are grateful for the glorious truth we've been singing about that changed everything forever. And, Lord, I pray now as we dive into your word together that we would be even more encouraged than we already have been, which is deeply encouraged. And, Lord, we pray that we would all be drawn closer to you, those who don't have a relationship with you this morning here, and those of us who do. We pray we would all know Jesus better because we open your word together. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. All right. Okay, well, that was glorious. I feel like we just go to heaven right now, never mind home. So, we live in troubled times. That, that was a, a glorious, victorious worship expression. But we come here realizing that we walk through these doors with trouble everywhere. There's trouble all around us. We live indeed in troubled times filled with injustice everywhere we look and evil and uncertainty and confusion. So the big question ends up being, where's the hope? Where do we find hope? Without hope, you lose the very will to live. Without hope, you lose gratitude, you lose joy, you lose purpose, you lose the meaning life is intended to have. So, there's no more important question than where hope is to be found. Where is the hope? You're not going to find it in the 24-hour news cycle. You're not going to find it in the opinions of the latest pundits or bloggers or so-called influencers. Because Paul was right when he said to Timothy that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Why? For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. And you need to spend 90 seconds on the internet and you'll see all of that on display. And if you take an honest look in your own heart, you'll have to recognize that all those things lurk in there. But, 
by the grace of God being at work in your heart. So where do we find the hope, the confidence, the peace, the rest we desperately need? It's not out there, and it's not even in many versions of religion, even Christian religion, that we will find in our society. Listen to the theologian Donald Armstrong. He said, in our current time, the essential and life-changing question that Jesus asked of his disciples, who do you say that I am, has been in the theology of many effectively changed to who would you like me to be? From theologians who critique Jesus through their own experience to church growth experts who offer God at your service, Jesus has been re-envisioned and re-imagined to bless what we have become and grant the fulfillment of our indulgent desires. It is that It is that this new image of Jesus, which finds its source not in scripture and tradition, but in human narcissism, is quickly becoming the basis for a new religion that supplants the faith of the apostles, takes the name of Christianity, and resides unchallenged in many churches. Somehow and somewhere, the classic faith of the apostles needs to be clearly and decisively articulated and applied to the current situation. I couldn't agree more. That is our day. It is so easy to cater to commercialism and a marketing mentality that will reduce the Christian message to something that encourages and feeds our own narcissism. It sounds Christian on the surface, but the message we've been singing about and reciting from Scripture this morning and hearing about from even John Updike is that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son, became a human being to take our place and live a righteous life and pay a perfect penalty in his sacrificial death and rise from the dead victoriously, and that has changed everything. So where do we find the hope and the confidence and the peace and the justice and the rest that we desperately need? We find it in the love of God seen in the power of the cross and an empty tomb. That's where we find the things we desperately long for and the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories that we've been focusing on during this Passion Week time. Jesus died and was buried and rose, and his way to glory was through the path of suffering. And that is true of his disciples as well. So if you'd open your Bibles, please, to Mark chapter 16, we're going to look at one of the crucifixion accounts and see that Jesus had risen from the dead and the apostles, the disciples, the followers of Jesus had a real struggle on Easter. They did not show up Easter morning dressed nicely and greeting each other. He's risen. He's risen indeed. They didn't go home and find Easter eggs and give each other candy and have a ham dinner. I was just wondering recently, do you think a ham dinner is had on Easter very often because it used to be unclean and now it's kosher? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. Never loved ham that much anyway. But uh, here we are. Jesus has risen from the dead, and Easter morning for the first Christians was very different than it's been since, as we'll see. Mark 16, verse 1. Help us, Lord. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, 
and Siloam. He brought spices, uh, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So, here we have an amazing picture of the most important thing that's ever happened in human history. And I love the history and humanity of this account. It starts with three women. The, the Gospels, the, the New Testament, highlight the importance of women in the ministry of Jesus. Here we have three women who aren't understanding what's happening, but they're faithful. They show up. The men have scattered Peter in denial, the others in terror and, and cowardice. But the women show up here, and they go and they buy spices. I was pondering this week what that trip to the market must have been like for them. They go and buy spices. You can't buy anything in the Middle East still to this day without bartering. They must not have wanted to barter very much, seeing that these spices were to go and anoint the body of their dear friend. But they go and they buy spices. They're doing what they can do. They're doing what they're able to do, and they're not even sure they're going to be able to do it because of the obstacles and challenges. And they're certainly not expecting a resurrection. The women are amazing here, but they're really in the same place as all the rest of the disciples, and that's a place of confusion, of sadness. And once they see the empty tomb, not rejoicing, saying he's risen indeed, but terrified. They're shocked. They're stunned. They're not going expecting a resurrection. They're going expecting a corpse. And they end up, through this scene, bewildered and fearful and confused and upset and traumatized. Why? Because they show up expecting a dead body and they find an empty tomb and an angel sitting there telling him he's not there. They don't say, oh yes, we've been studying all the Old Testament prophecies that talk about the resurrected Messiah, and this makes perfect sense. Thank you. We'll, we'll say it has indeed happened as we expected. Not at all. There's a process they have to go through that actually is a protracted, long-term process that all the disciples have to go through. They need to shift their thinking from a horizontal worldly plane to a vertical one that has a miraculous, wonderful solution to all of the world's problems. 
It wasn't a celebratory experience for them. But the angel does say, just as he told you, what's he referring to? Probably the previous chap- uh, two previous chapters ago, 1428. Jesus told his disciples that when the shepherd of the sheep is struck, the sheep will be scattered. So they scatter, and that's what's happening. And, and that's why he says they've scattered. The disciples aren't together anymore. They're, they're not moving ahead together in light of what they knew was going to happen. They've scattered now. So go and get them together under this understanding of the resurrection. And they're seized with trembling and astonishment. I want you to realize that coming to Jesus, it, 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 truly understanding who Jesus is and truly becoming a Christian It may seem for some of you like this calculated intellectual assessment and that you you quite in your your, uh, intelligent uh, uh, calculation of things decide that Jesus is worth um, giving your life to. And if you really understand who Jesus is, it may look different ways for us when we come to a saving understanding of Jesus. But for the disciples here, there is astonishment. There's, there's a trembling. That's, that's what we're told, right? They're afraid. They tremble, and they're astonished, and they're afraid, and they're alarmed. This isn't some dispassionate assessment that's merely intellectual. No, and this is a common pattern. If you read through the Gospel of Luke, you'll see this over and over again. Jesus calms the storm, and they don't say, cool. It says they're filled with great fear and say to one another, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? He casts out demons. And in Mark chapter 5, this man who had a legion of demons in him and the people in the area are seized with fear, we're told. Jesus heals the woman who's been hemorrhaging for a dozen years. And when he says, who touched me, she's terrified. She trembles in fear. She comes in fear and trembling, we're told. Jesus walks on water, and his disciples' terror of the storm, their terror is increased when they see him walking on the water. They all saw him and were terrified. In the transfiguration, when the three went up with him and saw him transfigured and show the glory he had always had but veiled in flesh, we're told they don't say, hey, this is really cool. They, they don't know what to say. And Peter mumbles something about building tabernacles for them. And it says they did not know what to say for they were terrified. When he foretells his death that's about to happen, it brings a traumatic result in the lives of the apostles. Coming to Jesus shouldn't be some easy, convenient thing that fits in with your preconceptions and current lifestyle. It's something that has a radical transformation. And people don't like this word fear. We need to have a really healthy understanding of the fear of the Lord. We need to be able to relate to God and his word in a way where we say, when we encounter him in his word and in daily life, we can't have a domesticated version of Jesus that fits our current lifestyle when we're not in concert with him. We've got to have a different approach to things. You don't, you don't trust and follow Jesus for greater ease and greater convenience and greater comfort. Imagine what the apostles would have thought of that idea. 
That if you come to Jesus, your life will be more convenient and more comfortable and and easier. Now, it'll be better. It'll be meaningful like you could never imagine. It'll be everything you were created to be, but it will be filled with radical, traumatic transformation. It'll look different in different lives in different ways. I mean, uh, when I was, I came to Christ, I can't remember before I trusted Jesus. I can't. I was very young. My mom used to sit my brother and me on her lap and read the Bible to us. And in a very early age, I come to know Jesus. And in my whole life, every time I've sung that hymn, years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified. I thought, not many years. I cared my Lord was crucified as long as I can remember. So, so it wasn't like we have this you know, skid row to the church transformation for all of us. But in our hearts, in our perspective, in our lives, we should seek to have a relationship with Jesus that can have traumatic transformation happening. We're, we're, even when we've been walking with him for a long time, It's not just status quo all the time. He is in the process of making us like himself, of conforming us all to the image of Christ. And I've been at it a long time, and I still am astounded at how much further I have to go to really know Christ and the power of his resurrection and understand who he is and understand who I am called to be in him. And so we need not fear the fear. We actually need to seek it when it's a healthy fear. Not the fear you have of an abusive father, but one you have of Almighty God who has revealed himself. You see, this fear when people have it in the Bible, it's the result of the realization of God's holiness and his judgment and any time he reveals himself. But in the midst of that, Jesus says to you, I'm alive, I'm alive, and I'm for you. And so we have, hopefully, a healthy fear. He says, don't have unhealthy fear. Don't fear not, he'll say. But there's something right about a healthy fear. But then even in the midst of all of that, he says, fear not, I'm with you. I'm for you. I've done everything that needed to be done. He is alive. That's the first thing he wants you to know. And this points us to the fact of the resurrection and the impact of the resurrection. The fact of the resurrection is the gospel truth. Count on it. There was an empty tomb. There's no good historical reason to doubt the resurrection. None. Really, the only reason you would deny the resurrection is not historically and factually, but because you have a view of things in the world that doesn't allow for miracles like the resurrection. And I would just challenge you to question those presuppositions about the absence of miracles in daily life. The miraculous became a a way the disciples showed Jesus was at work in their lives. It's the gospel truth. The Old Testament prepares us for it. Jesus prophesied that it would happen. Mark 8, 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and in three days rise again. There's abundant historical evidence for this. There's an empty tomb. There was the eyewitness of the church that transformed the disciples from cowards to martyrs and heroes because they really knew Jesus had risen from the dead. But we need to go to God's word to find out what the resurrection means. The resurrection 
means, the impact of the resurrection means, first of all, that this world matters. Matter matters. The physical world matters. Jesus physically rose from the dead. The creation shows this. Jesus becoming a human being, including flesh beam, shows this. The, uh, the ascension shows this. That God is going to redeem and restore the heavens and the earth shows this. The created physical world matters, and so does your life. That means the Easter dinner you eat today matters to God. That's why we should enjoy it. Life matters. Everything matters. In this world, everything matters has a radical affirmation in the resurrection. Everything does. It all really matters. And it also shows us the resurrection that Jesus is Lord. Listen to Romans 1.4. He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So Jesus rose from the dead, so Jesus calls the shots. Who runs your life? Who runs your life? Who's calling the shots? Who, who's deciding the realities of your life? Is it you? Is it your gut? Is it, is it uh, Oprah? Is it somebody who you just were really, really influenced by in 10th grade by an English teacher who really got a hold of your heart? Or, or is it a collection of different ideas or thinkers or people or influencers? Is it Taylor Swift? Who, who really runs your life? Who determines what's true for you, what's real for you, what matters to you? If Jesus rose from the dead, he calls the shots. Jesus is in charge. He is everything he said he was. I love Tim Keller's quote here. The issue on which everything hangs is not whether you like Jesus and his teachings, but whether or not he rose from the dead. If he rose from the dead, we need to conform our likes and dislikes to him. And it also shows us that the cross worked. And as we beautifully were singing, the, the curse is reversed. 1 Corinthians 15. For as by a man came death... By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. The curse is reversed. Death is defeated. And it's redefined for us now. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. You know, I, I love the he's risen, he's risen indeed. But I almost wish it were he's risen and we with him. That'd be great. I love the affirmation, but how about the affirmation that Jesus was raised and those of us who trust him are raised with him in the same power of the resurrection that rose Jesus from the dead. If you've repented of your sin and trusted Jesus in saving faith, has made you alive, a new creature in Christ, and is at work in you now, transforming you to be like him and enabling you to overcome sin and one day will enable you to overcome death once and for all and you'll live forever with him. That's the truth of the resurrection. And this brings freedom from God's wrath and judgment. As scary as death is, there's something more scary. And that's judgment. It is appointed a man to live once and then to face the judgment. You die and then you face the judgment. And Jesus, we're told, has given assurance to all of our salvation and our freedom from that judgment and wrath to come through his resurrection. That's what it says in Acts 17. Because we can be forgiven. 
because he's accomplished everything we needed him to. Listen to Acts 4.24. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification because Jesus died and rose. You can be considered righteous in the sight of God and forgiven forevermore. And this means we can have lives of profound meaning and hope and fruitfulness. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. If you were at the amazing memorial service for Ruth Dix last week, the verse that her family decided to put on the front of the bulletin and that I preached out of was that verse. This woman who has not lived in vain in the way she invested her life. Why? Because she knew Jesus had risen from the dead. And so he's alive and he's for you and he's accomplished everything he said he would and he keeps all his promises. He keeps his promise to never leave or forsake us. He keeps his promise to welcome back the prodigal. And if that's you this morning, come on home. He promises to welcome you home with open arms. He promises to baptize us with the Holy Spirit, and he does that in our new creation. He promises to reward the sacrifices you make in this life a hundred times in the age to come. He keeps his promise that he makes us fishers of men. He keeps his promise that we would suffer. He keeps his promise that the gospel will be preached to all nations. And that becomes our great privilege to preach that that gospel. And so the resurrection uh, uh, traumatically transforms us into hopeful disciples and bold proclaimers. Would you go to Acts chapter 4? And look at what happens to the disciples. They go from terror and and trauma and being alarmed and fearful and trembling to boldly preaching the gospel, even if it costs them their lives, and it does for all but one of them. Listen to Acts chapter 4 and this incredible story and the way they were transformed from suffering to the subsequent glories. Here we go. Acts 4, 1. Listen. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and captains of the temple and the Sadducees came to them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus what? The resurrection from the dead. That was the heart of their message. That was what they emphasized more than anything else. If you read the, uh, the preaching of the apostles, the resurrection, throughout the book of Acts is the centerpiece of what they were proclaiming. They were healing in resurrection power people like the man they had just healed in the temple, this man for 40 years when that was unable to walk. And, and Jesus comes to him, and not only is he able to walk, but immediately the atrophy's gone, the distortion's gone, the disfigurement's gone, and he gets up and he runs around the temple proclaiming what God had done for him. And this causes quite a stir. And so Peter preaches an amazing sermon. And then we get to this first persecution of the church here. And watch what happens. Verse 3, and they arrested them 
and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem, and Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, listen to this boldness from this former denier of Jesus, this former coward, listen to him now. Listen to what the resurrection had done in his heart and in his life. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God has raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, now they were astonished and they recognized they had been with Jesus. Is that beautiful? Do you see the effect the resurrection had on these men? They were never the same. And they gave their lives for what they believed in the daily and in martyrdom. And we see through this incredible story that there's rejection, there's persecution, there's denial, and it's tragic. But the gospel continues to prevail. 5,000 come to saving faith in Jesus on this day, even in the midst of the persecution. That's why Jesus says in Luke 24, it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. You see, Jesus is the only way because of who he is and what he's done. He's the savior of the world. He's not just a teacher or a wise man or a sage or a righteous man. He's the savior of the world. Any Jesus that isn't this Jesus isn't the real Jesus. And salvation from sin and the darkness and twistedness of this fallen world is available through him. You physically and even spiritually can get up today like this man and walk spiritually with Jesus. Now, I, my son plays wheelchair tennis. I took him to a tournament this week in Indian Wells, which is an incredible tennis facility if you've never been there. It's just worth the visit. But, but people came from all over the world for this, this tennis tournament that Isaac played in. They came from Brazil and Vancouver and Florida and Utah. It's just, just amazing. And to see these people from all walks of life, different races, different cultural backgrounds, different, different languages. You know, you're not supposed to coach in tennis, but the, the Brazilian-speaking Portuguese obviously had an advantage because you don't know if they're encouraging or coaching, right? So I, I was thinking, hey, this is a little shady here. But, but it was just amazing to see these people come from all over the world, and they're so different. They're Vietnam vets. 
And there are former bikers who lost a, a, a leg in an accident. And there are people from all different backgrounds, but they have the same basic challenges. They have the same basic problems when they're getting together to amazingly overcome these obstacles. Most of these people could beat me in tennis, and I've got both legs. They're just astounding in the way, and they come together, and all the things that usually divide them don't divide them. My son from China, who's 16, comes in, and some guy who used to be in a motorcycle gang, he's like a brother to Isaac. And he's helping him overcome his obstacles. I was sitting at a table talking to one of the, one of the really good players. And, and I said, what tournaments are your favorite? And he said, well, this is a big one, but I don't go there anymore. And then he looked at me, not because I have disabilities, but because my son does. Now he includes me. He said, I don't go to that tournament anymore because they don't really care about us. He was looking at me when he said it. He included me in on this. There's a powerful identification when you have common obstacles and problems and challenges, and then you get together, and you help each other overcome those. You know, this man couldn't walk for 40 years. Some of the people in this tournament haven't been able to walk for longer than that. And they're, they're incredibly admirable and courageous efforts to overcome these obstacles is jaw-dropping. But I was sitting there thinking, this is just temporary. We need an answer not just to overcome obstacles in life now, but ultimately. And we should so outdo as God's people the kind of bond and commitment and identification with one another that they have because we have eternal solutions to our greatest problems. And we realize our greatest problems aren't just in the physical realm, they're in the spiritual realm. And that's what Jesus enables us to overcome. He frees us in life, in this life, and ultimately in the next from all the things that sin has brought into our world. And this man's healing moves us from the local to the universal, from the particular to the general, from the physical to the spiritual, and it tells us Jesus is in the process of taking back his world. That's what he's doing. Like Isaiah said the Messiah would when he says, the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf, deaf unstopped, then the lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute shall sing, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Don't you love that it says there's no, under, no name under heaven through whom we're saved? No name under heaven. Don't you love that phrase under heaven? That means the whole world. That means he's not just the savior of the Jew, but of the Gentile too. Gentiles, aren't you thankful for that? He's the savior of the Western, the Eastern, the white, the black, the Asian, the Latino. He's the savior even of Americans. He's the savior of Iraqis and Russians and rich and poor and former Buddhists and former Hindus and former Muslims and former atheists. He's the savior of convicts and even CEOs, and wise men, and simple men, and male, and female. He's the savior of the world. So please don't call yourself a Christian if you don't see him the way he sees himself. But what I really want for you this morning, what we at Grace really want for you to, is to see him for who he is. 
your Savior who can make your blind eyes see, your lame legs, legs walk, and your sins go away forever and give you the abundant and eternal life and the hope he promises to if you bow your knee to Jesus through repentance and faith, you can get up, dead man, and walk again when you trust the author of life. A friend of mine sent this out in a support letter. My dear friend Ed wrote this, and I told him on the phone yesterday, I'm going to quote you, and I might even cite you. Here's what Eddie said. Jesus transcends all the madness. I don't know if he was thinking of March Madness there. No, he was thinking about the madness in this world. And he says, look, I'm coming soon. I love that so much of what we were seeing this morning was not just about the resurrection, but that the resurrection positions us for the second coming. Jesus says, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they've done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Let the one who's thirsty come, and let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life find life. And that Ed concluded his letter this way. I'm not sure how to make sense of the world or find hope apart from him. He said he'd be back to make everything right. And that he'd reign in perfect clarity. Are you thirsty this morning? Are you hungry this morning? Jesus is here to provide everything you need with living water and food you need spiritually that'll never go away. Jesus is the oasis in the desert of life. I just spent two days in the desert. It's beautiful. I said to Isaac, Isaac, isn't it beautiful? And he goes, and I said, in a deserty sort of way. And he goes, okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it is. It's, it's beautiful in a deserty sort of way, but it desperately needs water. And Jesus provides that water because he is the author of life and the one who rose from the dead so we could know life. Don't leave here today without a greater grasp of who Jesus is and what it means to say that he is risen. Heavenly Father, help us to cling to Jesus far more than anything else in this world that it has to offer. And Lord, I pray that everyone here, all of us, most certainly myself included, would depend today more than we ever have on the res resurrected Lord of the universe. Lord, thank you that he keeps his promises. Thank you that he's alive and he's for us. Lord, what a joy it is to sing your praises and worship you with hearts set free, inclined to sing, because we used to be dead. And now we're alive. And we pray these things in the name of our risen, ascended, and returning Lord. Amen.